For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End of For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Angela Mallett today, not Mike Madison. Um, Angela is actually one of our team members here at End of For Good. She's our director of outreach I'm super excited to have her here. We're doing this series where all of us on the End of For Good team are sharing our stories of what changed our mind on this issue, since everyone who works here um, used to think one way and now thinks another way. And we all have really different journeys of coming to that conclusion. So Angela, welcome. Hello, Christina. Glad to be here. So Angela, before coming to work at End It For Good, she founded the Mississippi Harm Reduction Initiative, which was the first harm reduction organization in Mississippi, um, just working on uh, primarily education and helping to help people impacted by the criminal justice system get their lives back on track again, um, and had some really great wins out of that, came to work for us. Um, and she is also a mom to Stella. And she's a certified peer support specialist, uh, which means she's a person who has lived experience in addiction. We'll get into that a little bit later. Um, But Angela, I I want, so for the whole episode, what I want is for you to kind of tell people the journey of changing your mind, because Mm -hmm. that's the journey we're inviting people onto. Uh, But take us back kind of pre-changing your mind and even pre-addiction and just tell us about who you are. Oh, let's see. Well, I, like you, am I'm from Mississippi. I've lived here my whole life. I grew up on the Gulf Coast, um, just outside of Ocean Springs, and uh, had a huge family, lots of extended family, grew up, um, you know, with lots of cousins and aunts and uncles all around. Um, and I went to high school here. And then graduated and went to Ole Miss and got a degree in civil engineering. And then I moved back to the coast after college and went to work down here uh, designing roads and bridges for the, along the Mississippi Gulf Coast, primarily in Harrison and Jackson counties. So that was 2004 when I graduated college and uh, then so came home, went to work that summer, and then a year goes by. And uh, in August of 2005, we had a little storm blow through, and that was Hurricane Katrina, which just, you know, was complete devastation for everyone down here, Uh, and life as we knew it was just turned upside down. However, for me professionally, um, it just kind of springboarded me into my career because engineers had to rebuild everything, and so I spent the next... uh, for almost five years rebuilding after Katrina. Um, and I got to work on a lot of really fun projects and like what involved. What were some oh, of your favorites? Well, I think Beach Boulevard and Ocean Springs was really fun. Um, because you know, it's just a it's a beach, it's on the beach and it's a place that we all grew up going to and hanging out on 
the weekends and I get to big touristy areas. So getting the opportunity to be part of rebuilding something that's just like such a staple to the Mississippi Gulf Coast was, uh, I'm really proud of being able to be part of that. Um, that would probably be one of my favorite ones. Um, the Ocean Springs Biloxi Bridge had to be rebuilt and I got to be on the design build team for that bridge. And that was really fun. Um, yeah, so a lot of work in my uh, early, a lot of work that I was proud to be part of in my early 20s. Um, but unfortunately, you know, I was 29 years old and a storm blew through my personal life that I did not have the the tools to weather and rebuild from um, like we did after Katrina. So I was 29 and I, I got pregnant and I was super excited. I thought like, okay, now is the time that I'm going to have the family phase of my life. Um, uh, but unfortunately that pregnancy ended early due to a birth defect in the baby and uh, she was stillborn and I, and she, she had to be removed and I was prescribed pain medication afterwards. And I just had, I had no tools to kind of process any of that. I didn't understand anything about grief. I didn't understand anything about, um, a, about the steps you're supposed to take for your emotional well-being after something like that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I rem- I distinctly remember telling myself and my mom and my sisters like, just get this baby stuff out of my house. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk. I don't want to answer any questions. I just, I'm going to go back to work. And that's what I did. And I was like, I just shifted my focus and said, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to work and I'm not going to, I'm not going to address the fact that I had these hopes and dreams and plans that just kind of abruptly ended. And, um, and so that's what I did. Uh, I went back to work, um, but now I had a bottle of pain pills to help me do that. And I continued to take those pain pills unknowingly. Like I, um, I was taking them to numb emotional pain. And, and I, I, addiction was just kind of not on my radar. I, I was not, it was not something I was afraid of because I had, I had, when I was by, I was not a, a sheltered person. Like I had drank before I tried pot before I had uh, tried other drugs before, like during college and in, in my wild twenties, but never problematically. It was always just like, okay, that was an experience. Like, let's move on. We've got homework or you know, we've got mm-hmm. work to do. Um, but at this, at this juncture, um, when I'm taking these prescription pills and I'm numbing loads of emotional pain, uh, it quickly spiraled into full-blown dependence and then uh, escalated to IV use and then um, escalated to using, when I couldn't get legal prescriptions anymore, escalated to using opioids from the street. And, um, and over the course of the next four, four to five years of my life, um, I, it just completely consumed me. Um, and my life was totally derailed. So I, I ended up losing my job and my home and I started having more and more encounters with the criminal justice system. And, uh, and then finally in 2013, I was arrested for a felony charge and I was incarcerated for several months and then court ordered to go to treatment. And, and I went to treatment in Jackson, Mississippi, and, um, and, and that's where I was introduced to recovery. And that was through 12-step recovery and abstinence. Um, so the flip side of that, the ending to that story is that um, today I'm a mother and uh, my daughter Stella is seven years old and I have been sober for six years now through, you know, 12 step traditional abstinence based recovery. And, um, and yeah, so here we are. So that was a, um, the 32nd journey of a massive 
earthquake in your yeah. life of not just addiction, but of recovery, um, of relapse and recovery. And we'll, we'll get into that in future episodes. Angela and I are going to do, um, past this series, which is kind of the story of our team changing their minds. Angela and I are going to do a five-part series diving into a lot of the questions that a lot of people often have, particularly people in recovery, uh, people who have either been harmed themselves through drug use or have had family members who are harmed. Um, and so we, Angela and I sit around and talk about these things all the time and have for the last couple of years since we met each other. And so we, we've decided to do, um, a series kind of dealing with some of the the toughest questions that we get, some of the toughest things that have been part of, um, uh, Angela's journey and particularly for her with working with so many people and families who are impacted by addiction um, in a way that people rightfully say I can't address, which is true. I have not lived that mm-hmm. and my family has not lived that. And so, um, I, and I'm, I am okay uh, acknowledging that that is not something I can speak into with um, any kind of, of lived experience, but Angela can. And has wrestled lots of wrestling, uh, with these ideas. And so she was just reminding me right before we started recording that it took her the longest to change her mind of anyone. So, um, I think there's a very false belief, uh, among people who really aren't connected to the issue at all that, you know, well, someone who used to be addicted, sure. They want, you know, substances to be available because they just want to go get high. Um, for somebody whose life has been destroyed by those substances, that is not at all the case. Uh, they're, probably um, at our events, the people who are least likely to agree are people who have been through addiction. Uh, The pain of that, the trauma of that addiction for them is um, very real and something they do not want to uh, relive or help anyone experience or anything like that. Um, And so we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit more. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. But for today's particular episode, um, moving into sort of what ended up changing your mind. So you um, went through this incredibly painful addiction, derailed your Mm -hmm. life completely, um, found recovery uh, Mm -hmm. and have been in long-term recovery now. Um, What was your, what was kind of the beginning of your journey of moving from these substances destroyed my life and you know, I don't, I don't want to change anything, maybe, you know, harder, tougher on that, um, to maybe we're not approaching this the right way. Oh, let's see. So I, I would say simultaneously in early recovery, um, I started learn like I started going to meetings and I'm listening right so I'm going to 12-step meetings and I'm listening to everything everyone's saying I'm just taking it all in and trying to make sense of the mess you know that my life like because I was just bewildered for a while I'm like how what happened (laughs) like where did where did things go wrong um I thought that I could handle anything I really believed that about myself. I was, I have always been um, fearless and bold and I, I'm just not, I mean, sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. <laughs> I'm just not afraid to do things or to, to say the hard things. Um, and, and so I was bewildered for a while, just trying to understand what, what happened to me. How did I end up here? And so I'm, so I'm going to these meetings and I, you know, I desperately want to change and I want to understand what's going on. And, and by so 12 step meetings, you mean like Alcoholics Anonymous meetings yes. that people are familiar with happening all yes. over the world. Okay. Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. I primarily, because um, I, 
I was in Jackson, Mississippi, and they have both there. Um, I, but the groups that I just kind of fit, fit in with and, and felt community in were the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And maybe that's just because those are the ones that lined up with my schedule as a mom. Um, I love NA meetings too, but in, I go to them down here now on the coast. But in Jackson, I was going to AA. Um, and I'm listening to these stories and, I, and I'm hearing a common theme from people. I went to a, a lot of speaker meetings and that's where you go and you listen to someone with a you know period of sobriety, they tell their story. And I'm, I'm hearing these common themes of, of a person, something happened to them in childhood, like something happened and that something is, was different for every one of them, but something happened that set the stage for problematic drug use later on in their life. And I didn't know what that meant. I just noticed that. I noticed that every time somebody would tell their story, they would tell, you know, about, about the things that happened, you know, whether things that happened while they were using and um, whether that was, you know, jail or disrupting their family or, um, you know, hurting others they they talk about that but then they would always go back to but this happened in my childhood and this set the stage for this behavior so now I've got to go back and and understand and process and heal from these childhood things and so I noticed that and I didn't really understand what that meant um so I'm curious and I just wanted to learn and uh I started researching childhood trauma and, uh, and I also learned, noticed in, in the groups and meeting with my therapist at the treatment center, they would always point back to childhood. And I was like, well, why is that? Why do y'all want to talk about my childhood? You know, I did not use drugs in my childhood. Why do we have to talk about that? And they, they explained to me like, no, that is where the stage is set. And all of your behaviors and your belief systems in adulthood are, are generated from your childhood. So I started learning about childhood trauma and I learned about ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences now called PACEs, which are positive and adverse childhood experiences. And I learned about the science behind them, that they, that these experiences in childhood, it has been measured and researched and studied and there's thousands of publications out there that show there's direct correlation between the experiences you have in childhood uh, and and your later health and behavioral issues as an adult. So, so that, that would was be for, like for somebody who has experienced a lot of childhood trauma, it doesn't mean that they're going to become addicted, but it just means their risk factors for becoming addicted correct. are much higher than for someone who has not experienced a lot of childhood trauma. Correct. And, and then, you know, almost... You know, Everyone, not almost, but but everyone I met who was on their journey of recovery, um, who I met in the rooms and met at AA or twelve or NA functions, um, they they all had you know some pain that they were trying, some pain that they were using the drugs to to soothe, and that pain was different for everyone, and so. Um, I call it seeing through the trauma lens. So after that, I, I began studying trauma. I began teaching about it. Um, so I'm a peer support specialist. Um, I'm also a peer support trainer and I helped train through the Mississippi Department of Mental Health. And, um, and I developed trainings that talked about the significance of trauma in recovery and how you, if you want to, you know, if you want to have like a deeper successful recovery, you've got to be addressing some of these traumatic issues that happened in childhood. So having a a deep understanding about trauma helped me, I think helped open my mind to understanding the real reasons why people are using drugs. And so that was, that was door number one that opened for me. Um, So before you go to door number two, when you say the real reasons why people are using drugs, are you using that as, as a descriptor of saying 
you, it, it's a shift from thinking the drugs are the reason people use drugs to right. the drugs are an outcome of something else, which is the yeah. real reason they're using drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So pain is the real reason that people are using drugs. Uh, now pain is, a, is a subjective word. Maybe we should say discomfort, you know, and, and sometimes the discomfort is, I had this horrible thing happen in my childhood, like, uh, like molestation or physical abuse. And that set the tone for the way that I see myself and the way that I see the world. And I'm not, I am not okay in the world and the drugs help soothe that. Right. Sometimes the discomfort is, is I have really, really bad insecurities and, and I'm not okay in social settings and I'm not comfortable in my own skin. And the only way that I found as a teenager that I could be comfortable in my own skin around other people is if I was drinking or, or using some other substance. So it's not the substance that's the problem. It's the pain. It's the discomfort that's in that person's life that they're trying to soothe. And, um, and, you know, I, I read, in the realm of the hungry ghost by Dr. Gabor Mate. And in that book, he says, no, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here because I don't remember the exact quote, but he says, you, instead of asking why the addiction, you need to start asking why the pain, right? You need to understand what pain the drugs are soothing. Because then if you can go, if you can go and, and identify and work on that pain, with, with your, with your spiritual advisor, with your sponsor, with your therapist, with someone, um, and, and try to heal that void, then you don't need the substances anymore, right? Um, the substances are just a a physical response to an emotional pain. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. It's interesting that you said, um, you're talking about, so I like that you make the distinction that it's not always like, something awful happened to you, like an event yeah. happened to you. It can be the way that you perceive yourself. It can be that you're teenagers, you never felt comfortable in your own skin, or you always dealt with social anxiety around other people or whatever the case may be. It's interesting how many people I've talked to, um, particularly as I was working on interviews for the book that I'm working on, who ha- are in recovery and their own, mm-hmm. like I never gave them wording to describe what it was that they felt. I just asked them like, what, what it was it that you felt like when you were using substances and how many of them said, you know, when I first drank or when I first used this or that or the other, um, I, I felt comfortable in my own skin for the first time. I felt okay being me. Um, that was just really fascinating to me as somebody who doesn't have a lot of experience with substance use. Um, how many people said that, or, you know, this intense sense of like well-being, like I just felt loved or I felt, um, like my life was okay. The world was, was, was good. Uh, Mm -hmm. totally different from what most people think about when they think about substance use, they think about like people use drugs because they want to be crazy. They just want to be defiant. They want to be. And then when you ask people their actual lived experiences of what did that feel like to you? Um, those, that's not what you hear by and large. I mean, there's a few people that say, well, you know, I used cocaine and it made me feel like the king of the world. Well, that might feel great if you didn't feel <laughs> like the king of the world before. Um, you know, what did you feel like before that, that, that was such a, a great feeling to you? Um, maybe you always felt insignificant and suddenly you felt like, you know, you mattered or whatever the case is. That's kind of a side point, but it is interesting that you use that same, you know, terminology and have heard that too with people. Yeah. I think, um, opiates for me made me feel safe. Um, and, and safe as in like, okay. You know, like taking that deep breath and that sigh because that's what it did. Like it was like, okay, Angie, you're okay. You're going to be okay right now. And so these these fears uh, that I had circling around in my head, um, it would quiet them, and and it was a I guess a sense of well being, a sense of safety and a sense of well being mm-hmm. is what it did for me. But yeah, you know, it, it's, 
like that for everyone. <laughs> so that was your door. Number one was kind of learning about trauma. Yeah. What was door number two? Uh, before we open door number two, I have to say this. <laughs> so uh, there's a Ted talk by Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, and she's talking about childhood trauma. And I listened to that one day, ran across it. I don't know if I think I was folding clothes one day, just listening to stuff. And, and she comes on and she, you know, she begins talking about childhood trauma and the implications that it has like at the macro level um, for the large groups, people for large people groups. And I'm just listening to her and all of the little snippets of information I'd heard from and you know, the theme of childhood experiences that I heard in, in AA rooms and the discussions that I had in group therapy and little pieces, bits and pieces I heard from my therapist, like pushing me and encouraging me to go back and explore my own childhood experiences. When I heard her Ted talk, it's like all those things just converged. I'm like, ah, now this makes sense. Now it makes sense. And she said, uh, one thing that just kind of shifted the way that I view um, drugs and people who use them and, and our societal response. So she says uh, prior to getting her doctorate, she got a master's in public health. And, and when she was going through her training and getting her public health degree, they taught them that if you go to a village and there's a hundred people that live in the village and 99 of them, have developed stomach issues and they've got diarrhea and they're sick to their stomach, right? So you can sit there as an MD and you can write dose after dose after dose of antibiotics to treat the stomach issues, or, or you can walk over to the well that they all drink out of and you can say, what is in this well? Like, because it has to be this common source that's making everyone sick. And for me, I was just like, ah, okay. So we've got millions of people who are addicted to substances and soothing themselves in some way with these substances. And, uh, and then you've got all these people dying and you can like send them one by one, you know, to treatment or to jail or to drug court. You can, you can do all of these things, but it is not, going to do anything to to figure out like why is the collective sick why is the collective wanting to numb and escape pain and I, that has always stuck with me and anyway so I wanted to share that the door number two would be would be Johan Hari and um, so again I'm at home one day and my daughter Stella I think she was like two at this time she's still taking an afternoon nap so that ought to give you some some reference uh Stella's taking a nap one day and I was laying there beside her again just reading on my phone and she's like I'm laying in bed and she's snuggled up here on my arm and um I'm looking at my phone and I, I saw this article and it said everything you think you know about addiction is wrong. I'm like, Oh, I must read this because I'm not wrong. <laughs> so I uh, opened the article and I'm reading it and it's a, it's a um, article of, but I don't even know who wrote it with Johan Hari and he's talking about his TEDx talk he did. And I'm reading him talking about rat, the rat park experiments with Dr. Bruce Alexander and how when you, you, know, you have the, the isolated rats who are fed drugged water, like will almost always compulsively use it and, and overdose and kill themselves. But when you put the rats in rat park where they have interactions with others and opportunities to move about and um, then in rat park, they don't, want the drug water and I'm sitting there thinking like okay so so six years ago I'm sitting alone in this house that you know that in my I'm sitting alone in my home and I've got a great job I've got you know 
all the material things that you could want, all of these, you know, friends and acquaintances in my family. And like, I've got, I've been successful in my career. I have all the things that I thought would make me happy, but I'm sitting there alone and I was taking pills and just, just spiraling into this dark place. And I was like, wow, you know, my life looked like that rat in the isolated cage. Like I was him. I was that. That's, that's with the drugged water bottle. And, um, and now that I have, I, now that I have positive things, I have my daughter now, and I have a a home that I love and a job that I love and people around me that support me. And, uh, and so my life is like rat park now, and I don't want to use the drug water. So that clicked with me. I'm like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. So maybe I should listen some more. So next I listened to his TED talk and I was like, "Uh uh-huh, this makes sense. I don't really understand what he's talking about at the end with this decriminalization legalization so I don't know what that means but this other stuff back here like the rat park and the understanding addiction um that's all true so I'm going to keep listening and then I I uh got the book and I read his book and then I started telling people about this book I'm like okay y'all have to read this yeah I started telling all my friends in recovery um, and at peer support trainings, I'm telling them like, you're going to have to read this book, Chasing the Scream, because he, it just made so much sense to me. The Rat Park stuff made sense to me. And then the history on how we arrived at this criminal approach to drugs made sense to me. Um, so that was door number two. And, um, and then I met you. It was, actually- it was simultaneously telling people, y'all need to read this book, Chasing the yeah. Scream. <laughs> So I think, so how it happened, uh, I don't know if we we talked about this. I was at a peer support training in Jackson and we, it's like a week long training. So you're in there with, um, you know, the cohort that's going through it. And we had a break in one of the sessions and I had my book with me and and I pulled it out and I, I like just made an announcement and was like, Hey guys all of you in here, you need to really read this book. (laughs) It's so great. It's going to help you understand substance use disorder. It's going to help you understand the root causes and why we need to shift away from criminalizing. And, um, and the uh, lady in there, and I think her name is Monica. She says, Oh, I saw on Facebook that there's this other lady in Jackson hosting a book discussion about this book. I was like, Oh, really? Well, I need to go. And then, and then I came and found you. That's right. Who knew mm-hmm. Johan Hari came to town in Mississippi with multiple people at the same time <laughs> <laughs> through his book. And we ended up uh, connecting through that. And then you came to one of our super early discussions before end it for good was ever a thing. This was like back when it was like my passion project. And I was just sort of dipping my toe in the water of, does anybody in Mississippi care about this? Is Is anybody else open to even, learning or, you know, considering if there was anything else that, that we could do. And Mm -hmm. I met you at one of those discussions. Yeah. I think I came to, maybe it was your second one. Yeah. Yeah. It was early. It was early. Yeah. And then I started inviting more people to come. Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. So what was the thing that, or the things, what were the things that kind of moved you from Okay, I kind of understand this sort of addiction piece. So this is where we see a lot of people now in our work with Ender for Good, which is a lot of people, um, uh, family members of people who are addicted, if they have had criminal justice involvement, have seen for the vast majority of people, it does not work. It doesn't solve their addiction. It often adds a lot more trauma and harm into their lives. So there is 
um, much more openness to kind of understanding the root causes of addiction than there used to be, particularly because so many people have family members who are impacted now. And they know when they look at their family member, this is not because my child is a terrible person. Something clearly else is going on because this is my, you know, sweet little kid who used to go play with lizards or, you know, I don't know, whatever. Um, so what is it that happened? And so there's kind of this openness that we see towards understanding um, better the root causes of addiction. And yet there's often uh, that does not translate into this rethinking of how we approach the drug market, how we approach access to drugs, how we uh, kind of roll back from the root causes of, you know, crime and overdose and um, incarceration, those kinds of things back to the policies that impact those and rethinking those. So what for you was, that journey, what, what led you further down that path rather than just stopping at, you know what, we just need to address the root causes of addiction and let's not worry about the policies. Oh, well, it would be my, my up close and personal walk through the criminal justice system. Uh, Oh, so that, I mean, that is a, a huge part of the story for me. Uh, because I had a lot of criminal justice involvement and, you know, I was, I think, and I don't even know, and it's sad to say sometimes like, but it's the truth. I don't remember all of the times that I was arrested. I've been curious to, to um, get, go pull my NCIC one day and just see it all. So I can, I can remember. Um, but so I had a lot of criminal justice involvement uh, once I once I got into recovery, um, and thankfully I was I was sentenced to drug court, which is which now we call intervention courts, and um, so that is intense supervised probation um, or intense supervision for people who are criminally who are involved in the criminal justice system, and it's you. I don't know if you've talked about what intervention courts look no, like. So talk through podcast. what is it, what does it look like for somebody who is in an intervention court? What did you have to do yeah, as part so of that? Every day you, you call in, you call a phone number every day to find out if you have a random drug screen the next day. So you, you know, you always have to be prepared to go in. Um, usually we had random drug screens two to three times a week. Um, so you just call the number every day and you go and so they're random, randomly drug testing you. And then you have to co- have court appearances every week. Um, the court that I was involved in, we had them every two weeks and you do that for, uh, for a period of three years. And if you can maintain your sobriety for that entire period of time, you pay off all of your fines. You don't miss any court dates. Um, then you can, then you complete drug court and your record can be expunged, which is great. And I, I was ready for that in my life. Uh, I was the poster child for drug court when I was sentenced to it, because I was, I was at this stage where I was, I was ready for change. I did not want to use substances anymore. And I just needed some guardrails in my life and, and drug court gave those, those guardrails. Um, but the experience of it was the experience of it was very demeaning pretty much all of the time. And, uh, and, and when I say demeaning, it was, um, the staff on drug court and, the judge, um, it was, it was like, they, they just had a dehumanizing view of, of everyone, not just me, but just of everyone. They didn't, you know, speak to me in a way, in a, in conversation like you and I do. They were, it was always like in a, an authoritarian condescending tone, no matter what I did right um, or no matter how cordial or nice or respectful that I was, um, it was always just condescending tone. And I, um, I felt 
I felt very dehumanized by it. And I didn't like that. And I saw, I saw that that was the way that they treated everyone. And I, that just didn't sit well, sit well with me. Like, yes, we have all experienced. So yes, we've all gotten in trouble. We all had drug problems. That's why we're here, but we're still human beings. We're still moms and dads and we're, we are trying really, really hard um, to make reparations for that. And um, so I think that that whole experience gave me this really yucky taste in my mouth about uh, dehumanizing people and being condescending to them is it's just not right. And like, no wonder people are not wanting to follow your recommendations. No wonder they're, um, you know, not coming back. Um, so I also met lots of other women. Um, there's a, a handful that of ladies that I became really close to. Um, some of them, we went to treatment together. Some of them I've never, um, actually met in person, just communicated with them, but their stories were almost identical to mine. Um, but they were not given the opportunities that I was given in recovery. Um, so, you know, our charges, like there was one lady and our, our charges were the same. Our stories were almost identical, you know, where she had became addicted to opioids later in, in, in her twenties and, um, and tried to get sober. Um, then she had a child and she relapsed and, and then she was arrested again, but she was given like a really long printed prison sentence. And I read about her and I just saw that, um, that my story and hers were very similar. And I, and I was like, well, what's the difference? Why, why was I allowed to go to treatment? and placed on intervention court. And I now have this opportunity to, to raise my child and get better and heal. Um, but she's given this long 15 year prison sentence and uh, just the inequalities did not sit right with me. So I started looking and going, okay. So people are using drugs because of pain, right? If they're addicted, it is because they are, they are trying to soothe some deep hurt, right? And we know that isolating people and shaming them and stigmatizing them makes it worse, right? Because we have tons of research. Rat Park shows that. Rat Park shows that people do, that people, uh, do better when they are in a community thriving environment and they're not, they don't want to use the drug water, right? And then we've got, this whole criminal justice response that exacerbates the pain and the shame and the stigma, right? So if we know that that's causing it, why are we continuing to do it? Like, it just doesn't make sense. So you do. So all of this knowledge converges in my mind, Christina. <laughs> and uh, and while so you're I'm in- watching YouTube videos while your daughter's taking a nap and I'm yeah. like, taking a nap while my kids are taking a nap. Angela like learns more than just about anybody I know. Always watching documentaries, <laughs> reading stuff, sending me links. Well, listen to this podcast, listen to this, well, read this thing, which is great. Uh, so all, <laughs> all of this, this stuff is, is going on and, and converging. And I, now I lost my train of thought. Let's see. Um, so you were thinking about kind of the, um, not just the root causes of addiction, but then how does the criminal justice system play into that? Is that the right track to keep on, to keep using the criminal justice system? Oh, yes. Now I know what I was going to say. Thank you for bringing me back to it. Absolutely. All right, so all of this information swirling around and, and, and at my, at my core, like, inside, I see the world in systems. You know, I see, um, I was, I was taught that maybe I was taught that kind of in childhood. I'm not sure, but, 
and certainly in college, you know, we're taught the engineering method, which is which is a an iteration of the scientific method, and that's that is the way of evaluating any type of system, right? So you you lay out all the pieces of it, and you find out where are the inefficiencies, where's the backup happening, where is is there part of the system that's broken? But you have to look at the entire thing in order to figure this out. And, um, and so I am, as I'm bringing in all of this new knowledge about trauma and the science behind addiction and the history behind it, and, and then this criminal justice approach, it's not working. And I'm, and I'm zooming all the way out and looking and I'm like, none of these things are working. Like none of these responses the punitive responses, the even our treatment modalities, most of them don't have the intended outcomes. Like most treatment modalities only have about a 10% success rate. And I'm seeing all of this and I'm like, it's, it's just not working. Something's, something's not right. And, and then the more I, you and I are talking and I'm figuring, I'm learning these things. I'm like, okay, so it's the policies. Right, because the policies sit way up here and they're dictating what happens in the criminal justice system. They're dictating what happens in the treatment industry. They're dictating um, the way that we're educating our kids about drugs and, and the truth about them. It is, it's the policies that are sitting up here that are creating all of the downstream backups. So making that connection and realizing, okay, so there, it is the policies that are wrong. So what, so now what's happening with our policies? So now I'm no longer just looking at, um, at the things that disturbed me in the criminal justice system or the things that disturbed me in the treatment system. Um, now I, I'm up here and I'm looking at the policies like, okay, all of the, the clog up in the system is coming from up here. Hmm. Yeah. That's a helpful way to, to think about it. So I think about it, I don't think of it, I think in terms of systems, but I think of, um, we've done like, you know, professional development things. We like, you know, mm-hmm. test our, you know, how we see the world, how we work and those kind of things. Um, and connectivity is always one of my top ones. Like I see chain reactions, like I see the mm-hmm. world as a, as a like yeah. a conglomeration of chain reactions that happen. And so yes. I'm always thinking about, okay, what was the thing? In fact, I just sent a, um, an email to somebody. So there was a man who connected me with another man who connected me uh-huh. with a lady who connected me with another lady. And I'm speaking at their conference because of that on behalf of End It For Good. And so I'm just sitting, you know, after that is already scheduled and everything, I'm thinking about like, how did that come about? And I'm running that chain reaction back and yeah. sending an email to the first person who made the connection. He had no clue about that conference, but he just connected me to somebody he thought I should know who connected me to somebody else he thought I should know. And, and the chain reaction kind of kept going. So I look at that and I don't just say, um, the lady who invited me to the conference is someone I should thank for the opportunity. I'm going Mm -hmm. back up that chain and saying all of those people are part of the reason why I'm speaking at that conference. Um, and all of them had a hand in that, whether or not they intended to, so, so I kind of think about like drug policy is like whether or not you intend for a certain outcome to happen, you got to reckon with the outcome and you got to trace mm-hmm. it back up that chain reaction um, to see what's actually causing that. And so that can be in like a good way um, with things that are positively impacting outcomes and it can be in negative ways with things that are negatively impacting outcomes. Um, so that's that. I've never really thought about it, I guess, in terms of systems before, but I, I think about chain reactions like that and how, how things impact other things. And if you want to get to the root cause of, of some outcome that you don't like, you got to figure out what's actually causing it at a high level. Yeah. I like the connectivity piece and I like, I like tracing things back and just see how one of, you know, one event's connected to another. I like doing that, but I can't, you're great at it. Um, I tend to not be able to do it until, you know, until like a year down the road. 
<laughs> I can put all the pieces <laughs> together. I'm like, oh, so that led to that. Now she did this and he did this, but yeah. I'm just a little slower with, with it than you are. Oh. And we've had a lot of good discussions and I want to get into this in, in our upcoming series together about just the way that you have processed your own criminal justice involvement. So yeah, you can look back on some of it and say there was nothing redeeming about that. And then you can look back on something like drug court and say, okay, that was in my experience, a helpful piece in my life at that point. Mm-hmm. And yet I saw a lot of people that didn't get that opportunity or a lot of people that were just like me that, you know, failed a drug test or, you know, whatever. Um, and like kind of working through that because it is, it's easy for people to take a personal experience, overlay it on everyone and yeah. say, this is how it should work. You know, I got arrested and it changed my life and therefore arresting everyone is the right thing to do yes. because it should change their life. Um, now I would say we got to take into, is it changing their life in a positive way in any sort of big picture uh, way? But those are a lot of discussions that we've had over the, mm-hmm. the course of our friendship. And after you came on um, with End It For Good, it's just wrestling with that, the, the sometimes positive outcomes that come from forced intervention. And what do you do with that? Um, so we're going to get into to some of that uh, later yeah. on. I, uh That'll be fun to unpack um, because there, there's so many complexities in that story. Um, you know, and I, you hear a lot, like you'll hear in, in recovery circles and the rooms of 12 step meetings and, you know, at in different venues where you're talking about intervention courts um, you hear it is, it's a common thing to hear people say drug court saved my life. I have probably said it a time or two myself, uh, but when I really, really think about, did it, did Trevor really save my life? Because it did not feel good. <laughs> the majority of the time that I was there, I did not like it uh, because I, I, I just didn't like being looked at condescendingly. Um, so now what I say is that, um, is that, the opportunity to ref, to refill my life with things that were meaningful to me is what changed my life, right? So while I was on drug court, I taught my daughter her ABCs and I gave her bubble baths every night and cooked dinner and we did teething and we potty trained and I wiped a million snotty noses those things. And I found a job that I loved and I found purpose and, you know, and a home that I loved and people came into my life that were really, really important to me. Um, those things helped change my life, but, but, and drug court created an opportunity for me to rebuild this, this thriving, meaningful life. I would not have been able to do that had I been in prison. And so I'm grateful for that opportunity, you know, but it was the things, the meaningful, important things that I put back in my life um, that changed it. Yeah, that's good. I'm going to dig into that some more. um, All right. Coming up. So uh, we'll wrap up here. And I, one thing I had thought about when you were um, last thing before you wrap up, when you were talking about the other woman who um, didn't get that chance that you did Mm -hmm. was sentenced to prison. Um, and so what I have noticed in myself, and I wonder if this is true with other people too, I'll just own it as my own response. So if I had heard you tell that story five years ago, um, before mm-hmm. I was on this journey myself, I, I don't even know if I would have recognized I was doing it, but I would have been doing subconsciously something to this effect, which is, um, there, Angela just thinks they were similar, but really Angela got the chance because the judge could see that she was a good person. And this other mom just probably, you know, was, was not a good person. The judge could see that Angela was, you know, uh, um, had a, you know, had had a great life before, had a great life potential in front of her, um, was this motivated, successful woman who had fallen into this addiction. 
And so, you know, these these are not similar stories. The, the criminal justice system can differentiate and does differentiate between sort of the good people that need, you know, drug court and the bad people that need prison, sort of which approach is going to sort of, uh, you know, meet that person with the thing that they uh, really need. Um, that would have been kind of my thought about that. And I, I know we're going to dive into this in, in future episodes, but um, what, what do you do with that? Because I think that's a very common, it is how we live with ourselves with the system we currently have. Uh, we cannot live with ourselves if we reckon with, no, it really is two women with the same story. There is a woman just like Angela with the same potential, the same abilities, the same hopes and dreams, the same child at home who is in prison. And Angela is here on the screen in her home, working for End It For Good, going out there and changing the world. She's not in prison. Were these really the same story? Or was it, no, 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 the judge could just differentiate and see that, you know, Angela had this potential and the other woman didn't. Um, I think that was yeah. one of the things I had to recommend. I I would I used to believe that way also. I I would have had that same response, you know, eight years ago, pre pre substance use coming in into my life. Um, you know, what changed me was that um, when I went when I came into the rooms of AA and and even into group settings while I was in treatment was um, recognizing that we are all the same. Um, The things that I thought differentiated me from others um, did did not matter. Like my college degree did not matter. Like my college degree did not keep me from becoming an IV heroin user. And um, my education, my intellect, none of those things had meant anything when I was you know, in the midst of active addiction. Um, and then, you know, the people that I met through recovery, I, I cared about how how big their hearts were. I, I loved the fact that they didn't, um, they didn't shame me. They didn't judge me. They just accepted me as a broken person who was trying to be better. And, um, and all of the, the things that we try to judge people by, you know, about who they were prior. So that's going to determine what kind of sentence I give them. I, I just don't think that that's, that's fair. I don't think that that's the way that we should be looking at people like measuring their worthiness by their accolades. We're all worthy. We're all worthy of healing. We're all worthy of compassion and we're all capable of doing great things. Um, and so I don't, I don't see the difference now, but once upon a time I might have. So we'll dive into that a little bit more and just okay. to some of your experiences of watching the criminal justice system play out with other people that you have known and loved and wanted mm-hmm. the same opportunities for that you got that did not get those opportunities. Um, and you're reckoning with that and continuing to reckoning with that as you do a lot of work with, you know, sharing your story at other drug courts and they're still, um, you know, in many ways supportive of the, the work that intervention courts are doing. And, um, and we are too, and yet there's some tension there between, you know, forced, uh, forced treatment or coerced, you know, treatment, coerced, um, responses and who gets those opportunities because not everyone's offered, um, intervention courts, even for those who might participate in it. I get emails regularly from people who, um, who say, you know, my, my child was sentenced. They're in prison. They were never given an opportunity for anything else. They weren't given an opportunity for, you know, treatment or anything like that. So we'll wrap up for today. Thanks so much, Angela. Looking forward to our next discussions. Um, we're always going to try to, to, to tackle the toughest questions, not the easiest questions, because the, the tough questions are where people get stuck. And so if we, if we can't provide some helpful commentary around those tough questions, then um, I don't think we're, we're doing our job well. So we're going to dive into those. It's going to be fun. I think all the time, well, you and I, we have these long, long conversations, these 
hundreds of phone calls over the past couple of years. And I just wish we would have recorded them all <laughs> because we, we have wrestled with this stuff, you know, yeah. sometimes just to, to great frustration, you know, but we wrestle with it and we work through it and we come out on the other side and we, we learn. So yep. maybe we We're- can share that with others. We are people on a journey. We are still learning ourselves, trying to wrestle ourselves, not just shut the door to learning once we've decided what we think. Um, so hopefully we can we can provide some of that that journey of learning for other people through this. So thanks, Angela. Thanks, Christina. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? by inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement. End it for good.